The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for Conversations That Matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Drew Hart. He's a public theologian and professor of theology at Messiah University. He's the author of several books, including a recently released, Who Will Be a Witness? Drew joins the twofer club of the podcast, appearing for the second time. Drew, welcome back to the conversation. Oh, I'm glad to be in conversation with you again, Andy. It's a pleasure. Now, as we were talking before uh, we hit record, um, it's been over two years since been on the podcast, two and a half years. Uh, of course, 2020, as I, as I remarked earlier, counts as five years, so it's been quite a while. So uh, catch us up on, on what you've been up to in the last couple of years uh, pre-COVID, and then we'll talk about your COVID experience. Yeah, it's hard to even think about what I've been doing for the last couple of years. I feel like just the last two weeks feels like two years, but um, let's see. Uh, since we, I, I can't remember what I was up to last, but um, when I was on before, but I'm in my fifth year of teaching at Maasai University and um, teaching has been going very well, just engaging students. I just uh, find so much joy in that opportunity to engage these young folks and so many young leaders um, coming out of our institution. And so it's, that's been exciting. 
another thing, area of my life that I spend a lot of time in is in my neighborhood. I'm a co-leader for a group called Free Together. I might have been already doing that um, when I spoke last time, but um, but just uh, a relational network of leaders in our community that are collaborating with faith-based organizers and other folks that are just doing good work and trying to just you know bring some shalom and some flourishing for all of our neighbors. Um, I've been continued to do ongoing speaking and traveling and anti-racism, Christian anti-racism workshops. Um, Most recently, which I've joined the podcast hosting world by, um, I'm a co-host with uh, Jared McKenna from Australia. So we have a kind of global, literally on both sides of the world, kind of hosted podcast and engaging really interesting folks around scripture, liberative readings of scripture. And so that's been interesting as well. And uh, and of course, family life, um, married with three boys now. Um, so our youngest is uh, approaching four years old. And so, um, yeah, life is full um, in a whole variety of ways, but um, also bring a lot of joy. Well, what's this uh, COVID experience been like for you? Yeah, COVID has been challenging. Uh, I'm I mean, in some ways, it has opened up new opportunities, but it's also been difficult. Obviously, the hardest part is hearing it. Um, just want to hear about friends and other loved ones who've lost people close to them. That's been really hard and difficult. Um, and it's also shifted, like, even my own work in terms of teaching. Um, I, like, right now, Messiah is open, but we have um, safe, uh, you know, uh, safe, you know, distancing in the classroom. And we have students that had a choice to either be on campus or to be remote. And so I actually have Zoom students and classroom students simultaneously for all my classes, which is challenging. Um, And then doing the community work primarily through Zoom is strange. Um, But it's also been opportunities for our family to create new habits and practices, even as a family, which is, has actually been um, really beautiful as well. Um, obviously, um, the weight of COVID along with the unrest and the uprisings and resistance to the racial injustice that's been going on, um, it seems like it's impossible to think about the one without the other. And so that's also just been pressing on my mind. And uh, we've been thinking about ways that we can be deepening our engagement. Even my own local church, I'm not a pastor anymore. Um, I pastored for 10 years, but the church I'm at now um, that we've been attending um, has always been committed to justice and things like that. But but I think, um, you know, these last few months have been a wake-up call, even for our church, that um, we've got to dig deeper and do better and, and think about what discipleship needs to look like in, in this context right now. And so all those things, it's just been a pleasure to be a part of that. Yeah. When you were last on the podcast um, in March of 2018, you had just released Trouble I've Seen, the way the church, uh, changing the way the church sees racism. So I'm confused. I, I thought the church had, had solved this issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, what has been interesting, I will say this, um, when I released Trouble I've Seen, number one, I was blown away by the the receptivity to the book. Um, I didn't expect um, that so many people were going to take it seriously and and begin wrestling with it. And so that's been, it's been really good to um, engage churches, many that had never had a language for systemic racism or white supremacy or thinking about it from a Christian standpoint, um, to engage hard conversations, even as congregations for the first time. And so 
um, getting to go and, you know, visit these different churches, speak, lead workshops and seminars. Um, that's been a pleasure. But there's no question that just as much as there has been awakening, there's been doubling down. Um, I'd seen that all the time. Uh, you, all you got to do is look at my email box and you can see uh, every now and then some nasty emails I get my way from strangers, right? Who want to tell me how my evil Marxist who hates America. Um, and so I, I think that, um, you know, right now, I think what we've seen is just unveiling a lot of the stuff that's been under the surface for a very long time. Um, the beauty is that actually our moment has actually uh, awakened a lot of folks to go dig deeper, but it has also had other folks doubling down. And I think that trouble I've seen diagnosed so much. In fact, so it's actually, I think right now, I mean, I don't know, I don't have the numbers. I'd have to get it from my publisher, but from the emails I'm getting, not just from my new book, but from trouble I've seen, it almost feels like it might even be more popular right this moment than when it first came out. Um, and I think that's partly because um, I didn't need, you know, Trump, it, like it was written in um, prior to Trump. It came out actually in 2016. That's when the, the book dropped. And I was diagnosing all these things um, and I didn't need a Trump administration to know that systemic racism was a problem or to, to know that we've um, shaped and organized our society by race in really harmful ways that advantage some and disadvantage others. Uh, and my lived experience had seen uh, violence and police brutality and things like that, that I knew um, I could communicate in meaningful ways. And so, yeah, I think it's interesting to look at where we're at now, the conversations we're having now, the ways that they've deepened, but also the resistance to, for some, to even have the conversation, the skirting, the avoidance, um, the white fragility, all of that kind of stuff in response to it. One of my favorite quotes from the book is when you wrote, Jesus' ministry and the parables told about the kingdom of God have not been taken serious enough. We have too easily aligned our, our lives to the way of Jesus because its lifestyles are taken for granted as right and true. We've too often been distracted by the American dream pursuing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness instead of God's reign on earth. However, one day we will find that it is not the American, but the kingdom of God that is beautiful. Do you feel like we're any closer to that vision? Um, I mean, I always have to say yes and no, right? Um, I mean, it's very clear right now that um, our society is deeply, deeply, deeply embedded in the logics of racial hierarchy and racial difference. Um, and that expresses itself through white supremacy and anti-blackness most you know, visibly, and I think in our nation. And, and, and there's so many divisions breaking down that it's hard to say yes, uh, that, that we're close to there. But on the other hand, again, like I'm seeing um, all across the country, like there are, there's something else also happening. There's a counter witness, there's communities learning how to love each other more, even despite how they've been socialized to not love certain people, right? And I think that um, their beloved community is bubbling up on the underside, even in the midst of really, um, you know, difficult moments that we're seeing and, and acknowledging. But, but I think the fact that we're feeling the tension more doesn't necessarily mean that things are getting worse. It's just that they're becoming more visible. I mean, I really believe that. Um, and, and actually the tension itself can actually be a good thing. Um, in fact, Dr. King would always talk about how, you know, tension itself, um, that he would intentionally create tension, um, for the very person of 
purpose of making it visible so that uh, we could work through it. And so if we lean into the conflicts and the tensions and try to seek to transform them, something beautiful can come out of that. So you have a new book out, um, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. Um, through this book, you're calling for a grassroots revolution of a politics of love. You wrote, we should not deny the very real pol political violence and harm that goes into society. We must embrace the radical and compassionate love, God, that is poised for revolution. Uh, walk us back to the conception of this book. Yeah, I mean, the, the book actually it, it really deeply connects with the work I was doing because of Through Trouble I've Seen. I um, I was going to all these congregations. I was actually surprised at how well I was being received, talking about white supremacy and systemic racism, sharing my lived experience, um, providing a, theo a theological ethic of Christian discipleship in the way of Jesus that is explicitly anti-racist and, um, and got really good response. But one of the things I heard a few times, several times, was, all right, it seems like at the end, you really want us to, to you know, do racial justice, to be in solidarity with those who are struggling and vulnerable, um, what does that actually mean? What does that actually look like? And I actually got that question more than once. And I realized like, it's not enough to just invite people into it. Like people need to have an imagination for what this actually looks like and, and, and how it can be lived out. And so that was the origins of me wanting to write the book. <coughs> and because I had been doing so much work in my own community around these issues, um, especially as I said, like a co-leader, I've worked with, um, you know, Milpa, who works does uh, works with undocumented immigrants in our community. I've worked with Power Interfaith, who does some stuff around funding for public education. I've worked at just a whole variety of different groups and leaders and connecting people together. And so, like, I had been a part of this kind of work and knew that I could help people think through it, even from a theological standpoint, um, but also a practical standpoint in terms of like, what are some strategies that congregations can engage in um, for grassroots work? So that was the origins. But then of course, you know, I'm a theologian, I'm not just going to write a how to book. Um, and so I, I really dig deep to think about like, what are the real issues that we've got to grapple with um, and think through as a church, um, if we're going to actually embody um, God's kingdom on the underside of so much violence and oppression. And so some of what I thought about was the fact that we've domesticated Jesus so much um, and then used him as a prop to justify all kinds of horrible things. I mean, that's so much of our nation's history. Um, we have this history of white supremacy and colonialism and all this stuff that, that has shaped our legacy. And sometimes we don't see how it shapes our present day. And we don't, we haven't confessed, I think, um, the failures and the mangled witness of the church. I think that um, we don't even always know what it means to be the church internally, nonetheless externally. And so there's all these bigger issues at stake that I felt like I wanted to address some of these things first before we get into what does it look like to um, embody justice at the grassroots level as congregations. Um, and so it's really uh, theological ethics in the, a radical you know, discipleship in the way of Jesus. It's grappling with the history of Christendom and white supremacy. It's it's grappling with what it means to be the church and worshiping a God of justice, um, as well as then how do we go out faithfully 
um, and effectively in our communities, seeking real concrete change because we love our neighbors and care about their well-being. Um, and so that's really um, kind of how that the story of the book kind of unfolded. Let's take a closer look at this concept of Jesus that you were talking about earlier. You know, I've had this conversation um, with many parishioners over the years of ministry um, in which, you know, preaching in such a way that opens their eyes to see Jesus beyond this personal salvific figure, um, you know, that wants us to ask him into their heart and that's it. You know, it's, that's it for a lot of white evangelicals. Uh, that's been the predominant thought. So when you write our revolutionary Messiah is overcoming sin, death, and evil that keeps us captivate deliverance is what we need, uh, from the forms of sin, death, and evil that wreak havoc on humanity and the rest of creation. Why do you think that Jesus is is the revolutionary figure uh, that we need right now? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 almost for me. It's almost a strange question because it's almost like how could we not right see him as someone? Um, I mean, if you actually when we read when we slow down and actually read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, we see not this, you know, I think what we've turned Jesus into, which is a a mascot for the status quo and a mascot for social dominance. But instead we see this Afro-Asiatic first century Palestinian Jew who's living under Roman occupation, who speaks prophetically in response to it and cares for the least last and lost and proclaims a new kingdom right under the nose of the old empire and then clashes with the establishments and calls them a den of robbers and accepts the, the, the consequences of that kind of faithful action, right? Um, I think that that models an on the ground in solidarity with those who are most vulnerable kind of witness. And it's not only a human action, but then it is God's action in Jesus Christ at work, overcoming evil, sin, death, and the powers of this world. Um, That's precisely a model for how we can live in the way of Jesus, but then also how we can participate in what God is doing to overcome this world and the cycles of violence that we see so often. So that that provides deep hope, I think, for me. And I can't imagine not wanting to join in with that good work. One of those fascinating chapters of the book uh, is Liberating uh, Barabbas. And you yeah. wrote, um, we ought not miss the liberative and revolutionary relevance of Jesus and Barabbas. Each offer something concrete for their here and now both are Jews with holistic understandings of liberation that would never split the spiritual apart from the social. Take us a little deeper there. Yeah, I think there's a way in which people have um, misread Barabbas for a very long time. And it's always intriguing when you think about it because the biblical uh, texts, and I I mean that all four of the gospel accounts are consistent about who Barabbas was. Um, they say that he participated in an insurrection. And so, I, I mean, in that chapter, which is also one of my favorites, I walk people through very carefully so that they can see um, exactly what the Bible actually says about who Barabbas is. Um, and so we have this revolutionary. Um, and it's interesting that he he shows up in every single account at the end of the, at the climax of the Jesus story, even in a way in which we don't see, you know, I mean, we don't even have 
birth accounts for Jesus in every single, uh, you know, account. And yet Barabbas seems to be so important that they want to compare Jesus to Barabbas every single time. And none of them have anything to say. It's not about, oh, Barabbas is a sinful one and Jesus takes our place. No, it's all about Barabbas took a part in this insurrection and uprising against the Roman Empire. <clears throat> and so when we recognize that, it forces us to wrestle with, you know, what are they trying to help us see about Jesus? Now, the the quick and I would say mistake that some people would go in is, oh, well, Barabbas was about an earthly kingdom and Jesus was about a spiritual kingdom, right? But of course, that doesn't make any sense. That's not, um, Jesus was not an escapist from this world. Um, in fact, his prayer was, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and so much is oriented around feeding people's physical needs, healing people's physical um, ailments and sicknesses, um, caring for the whole body, the whole self. Um, and so it was a really holistic ministry that included the social and political world that they lived in. And so when Jesus even clashes with the establishment, I'm, that's a political act. It's not a partisan act in the kind of way that we think about politics, but it's political in the sense that Jesus cares about how the world is structured and how it impacts people. In fact, one of the things he says when he gets to Jerusalem, um, and he, his critique is that they devour widows' homes, right? That's what Jesus' mouth, right? Um, and so he's concerned about how these things impact people's well-being and life. And so both what we begin to see, and hopefully my chapter makes clear, is that both Jesus and Barabbas care about the oppressed in their communities. They care about the poor in their communities. They want to see an end to the Roman oppression, but how they get there are, are different. And I'm careful in this to not, you know, I don't engage the conversation in a way that's just going to um, scold people who are engaging in violence. I think that's a, a cheap and easy way for some people to engage in the conversation, especially those who are not actually involved in actual justice work, but from the sidelines are kind of critiquing. Um, so I actually am careful to show that Jesus actually laments he doesn't scold, but he actually laments um, the destination of those who are going to take up the violent way um, as he mourns over Jerusalem and says that if, if only they had known the things that make for peace, right? Um, and so <clears throat> there's um, something distinct, I think, that we can see about Jesus that invites us to an, this on earth, in time and space, in our world, kind of work uh, nonviolent revolutionary work for justice at the grassroots level in solidarity with the oppressed that I think opens up when we see Jesus more clearly. And I do believe that considering Barabbas's story and his role in that pivotal moment, the climax of the Jesus story helps us see Jesus better. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. Who are the Barabbases of our day? Yeah, I guess um, 
You know, I don't, I'm not sure there are that many Barabbases of our day. It's interesting that we, um, there's a lot of concern today and a lot of concern about, you know, the violence of these movements. But actually, what is ironic, and, and I, I take this, I, I learned this critique from Dr. King himself, um, that he wanted to highlight that a lot of the uprisings happening in the Black community were not targeting and killing um, those who are oppressing them. It's actually attacking um, uh, buildings and property. And he wasn't condoning necessarily all the property damage that was going on, but he also wanted to differentiate the fact that killing people is different from destroying property, right? Um, and that we, I mean, King's thing always consistently throughout his life, he would always talk about, um, especially towards the end of his life, that we need to move from a thing-oriented society to a people-oriented society. And when we value things more than people, we're in a dangerous place in terms of our values. They're so askewed when we, when we get there. So most of the stuff that's going on today, there's very little killing of people in the uprisings. I'm not saying that there hasn't been any at all, but very little. Um, so I don't know if anybody, uh, what we're talking about probably in our context is very little that directly connected to Barabbas. But if we wanted to draw on that, at least in terms of even the destruction of property and things like that, then I guess it still could provide um, some lessons for us to think about the different ways that people are going about working for change. Not everything is uh, committed to nonviolence in the way that I think Jesus embodies in his own life. Uh, and it's precisely that moment then that um, on the ground, those who are doing work can learn from Jesus the way that he empathizes and laments with the Barabbases of our world rather than just condemning them, um, the zealots, right? Those who want to violently take up uh, the sword. And so I think that, yeah, I think that probably is at least the, the most significant parallel to the kind of conversations we're having. But I think we've got to recognize that um, much of what we're calling violence um, in our society is not against people. In fact, it's interesting that what they, the study came out and said, I think it was like 93% of the Black Lives Matter movement stuff has been peaceful, um, way higher peaceful rate than what people presume. And that includes things, they were including violence as like toppling Confederate statues and things like that, which I would say are not violence. I'd actually say that the Confederate statue itself is cultural violence uh, and an assault to the dignity of black people uh, and our ancestors who were enslaved here. Um, and so I think that um, when we view it from that point, again, um, not, most of the what we're calling violence is not reaching the standpoint of what we're talking about with Barabbas. I can all but guarantee that someone listening to my question is more focused on, um, I think it's Barabbi instead of Barabbas. What would be the plural of Barabbas? That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but I guarantee somebody's going to be more focused on that than that brilliant answer you just gave. <laughs> um, you've argued that, that typically Christians have shallow insight on faithful and effective strategies for social change, stating that believers often take sides about whether we need to change laws or change hearts. What's the most effective thing Jesus followers should do for effective social change today? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the first thing we've got to do is figure out what does it mean to be faithful to the way of Jesus that didn't um, 
divide and split the gospel in two. I think we suffer in the United States from our own history, um, and it's many things. I mean, certainly American Christianity went through the ringer through slavery. <clears throat> American Christianity went through the ringer through slavery because it needed to justify doing inhumane things to people's bodies. Um, and so there was this split in which black people were seen either initially as, uh, you know, well, at one point it's like soulless bodies or bodiless souls, right? Um, like it was either the body that they were paying attention to or the soul, but it was never the same. And so if it was soulless bodies, then it doesn't matter what you do. They're just bodies um, and you can treat them any way you want to. And then as the kind of evangelical kind of turn pulled um, the imagination of enslavers um, to think they're primarily souls and you just need to save the soul, right? And then it doesn't matter what you do to the body. Um, and so there's already a, a, a deep problem there that existed in the nation. And we can still hear that today in terms of how people will focus on saving souls while ignoring people's bodily lived experience, um, which looks nothing like the kind of ministry that we see in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, but then even more so in the early 20th century, when you have the divide between the um, fundamentalists, right, and the, you know, the social gospel and all that kind of stuff going on, um, that further ripped this divide in half, whereas a war between, you know, spiritual versus social. And I think that it's a shame that we've gone down that road that, again, completely on all ends just misrepresents the kind of ministry that Jesus was about. I mean, it's interesting that his first sermon in Luke, we hear him preaching from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed uh, go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so you don't see this kind of split. And I think that we've got to have a more holistic uh, vision uh, for the kind of ministry that we want to do in the world um, that really meets people where they're at and how, especially when they're suffering disproportionately, that we don't diminish that, that we don't discount that, um, even as as we recognize the need to care for the spiritual um, part of ourselves as well. But we are our whole selves, including our bodies. And I think that that's really going to be really important work for us to take seriously. That's that's God's kingdom here on earth when we're actually taking seriously um, a person's whole experience, including one's bodily experience on the earth. Um, and so that would be a, a huge starting point for us if we're going to um, not get into bifurcating the gospel. What does that practically look like for the local church? Yeah, I mean, I think that it opens up opportunities for us to seek concrete change for people's lives and want to pursue the flourishing of all people. So for me, like, so I'll give an example of the church I'm at, right? One of the things now we're talking about is how can we, I mean, our church already does so we have like two different um, community development associations that were kind of birthed out of our church. Um, one is called BCM Peace, and they do stuff around like nonviolence and training and opportunities in the community, things like that. The other one is a housing. It provides um, housing for women and children experiencing homelessness in our city. Um, and so these are concrete things that we're doing. But we also realize, and these are the more recent conversations, is, you know, it's 
it's not enough to just do these kind of mercy ministries and community development stuff. There's other bigger obstacles and policies in place that, that create barriers for people's thriving and flourishing. And so how do we begin to tackle some of those things? So for us, um, and some of it is you can, it's because I'm there, but, um, but it's uh, working with free together to do deeper work around like, for example, education. So in Pennsylvania, we have uh, just an embarrassing record in terms of the state funding for public education is just extremely racist and underfunded in terms of how it gets distributed through across the state. And that could be a whole conversation. But um, so us working locally with faith-based organizers in our city and, and in partnership with folks who are working on this across the state um, to help so that poor black and brown um, school districts can get adequately funded the way that they deserve so that our, that our children can flourish just like everyone else. And so these are concrete things, you know, that we're trying to work on. And there's others similar to that, um, ways that we can see where the suffering is um, with our neighbors and, and be in touch um, with what's going on around us and love our neighbors enough that we're going to act and respond compassionately. Um, compassionate in the Greek, Jesus, when it was talking about him, being moved with compassion is like it's in his bowels, right? He's moved literally physically in his stomach um, by what's going on around him. That's the kind of response that we have to have as churches um, to the suffering of others. It's blognon, one of the greatest Greek words in the New Testament. Yeah. Uh, as you were researching and writing, um, comparing it to what's happening in the world around us, What's the most challenging concept um, from the book, do you think, for people to accept and apply? I'm thinking that some people are, are probably, at least going into it, probably going to struggle most with the my emphasis around nonviolence. So even while I don't um, condemn, you know, and kind of castigate or whatever, you know, demonize folks who are engaging in violence in some form or things that are more destructive and maybe not as productive in my mind. Um, even while I take that stand, I also am a huge advocate for nonviolence because I think that's Jesus was a peacemaker, um, not peacekeeper, but a peacemaker. Um, peacemaking does require clashing with violence, disrupting violence in its way. Um, but it is also committed to um, recognizing the, um, image of God in every person and refusing to destroy them, right? Um, and I think that that's just, I think we're deeply socialized to believe that violence is what makes the world go round. I think that that's deeply, deeply what we believe in how we operate. And sometimes even though people would say, oh, it's unfortunate, but you got to do what you got to do, right? Um, I. But what's interesting is that social science when it comes to movements and social change work, um, social science actually dis, uh, disputes our assumptions around what actually works to bring change in the world. Um, and so they found that uh, nonviolent resistance is actually twice as effective and growing in effectiveness compared to violent movements. And that's all around the world. And that's under dictators as well as under democracies, right? Um, both. And, and so it's growing in effectiveness and already more effective. Um, and violent movements around the world are actually decreasing in effectiveness. Um, and that goes, I think, against our assumptions about around what works. 
And so I think that that's going to be challenging. And I think some of the reason why in our context it's challenging is because we've distorted what nonviolent movements actually are and mean, at least strategic nonviolent movements, right? We've lost the strategy part of it. And so I think people get rightly uh, frustrated with what gets called peaceful protest because it just means uh, every now and then we get upset and we go for a march or a rally and then we go our separate ways. Um, and that seems to not bring much social change, which is true. There, that it's, it's correct to be frustrated with that. Um, but that's, there's nothing creative or strategic about that kind of nonviolence. Um, but there actually are hundreds and hundreds of different tactics and strategies that people use to engage in nonviolent work. And we're just stuck on this the puny one-hit wonder of, of marching in the streets. And we imagine that that's the only thing Dr. King and the movement did even in the 50s and 60s, which is just not true. There was They actually engage in a whole variety of different strategies and they were plotting and strategizing and scheming for good. And I think that we've got to do the same thing. And, and some of the work is learning from those who've come before us, not just uh, here in the United States, but all around the world. Uh, and then all of a sudden we'll realize that there are a whole variety of nonviolent strategies available for the church. And I think what's beautiful for us as followers of Jesus is, is that that invites us to not have to choose between what we think is faithful and effective, that we can do both of those things at the same time. Um, and that's why I, I kind of lean into the language of Jesus, the things that make for peace. It seems that Jesus is suggesting that there is a particular way of life and practices that actually do produce more shalom in the world. Now, of course, I'd always say there's no guarantee in any moments. There's no like in any single individual action. Of course, there's there's always risks that you might get harmed and that what you're hoping for is not gonna come to fruition in that moment. But in the long run, I do believe, um, I guess it's faith as well as then the social science that says, you know, that this is the way that's gonna help us overcome and see God's new, uh, world begin to be birthed right underneath the nose of the old world. Who's doing this kind of work right now that we need to be paying attention to and learning from? I think on the national level, I mean, it's pretty clear that probably the most visible form of it is coming from Reverend Barber in the Poor People's Campaign, um, that he is probably the closest to you know the kind of civil rights movement that we saw in the 50s and 60s and, and except even broader in terms of it's this national movement with organizers and organizations from um, gathered from across the state in each of our states right and i think it's like over 40 now states that have poor people's campaigns kind of mobilizing and organizing in their communities and so i think that that would be the most visible form but of course there's always um so much more going on locally um, at the local level that we've also got to pay attention to. So I always invite people to learn what's happening in your own community. Who's been doing the good work already? Who's been organizing your community? Who's been fighting for justice for the long haul, right? Um, and I'm, I'm all for, I mean, when I talk in my book, like I point people towards, you know, we can participate in these protest movements but the reality is that a lot of times, you know, they're not there for the long haul. They can make some significant change sometimes, especially when they're strategic um, and they're sustained and active, then they can do some real work. But, but when, um, you know, all that fades away, 
Then you also have organizers and other folks who've been doing this work for a very long time. And we have opportunities to be joining in. So that's why I mentioned like, you know, when I work here in Harrisburg with the, you know, the Harrisburg abolition table, working around policing and Milpa with immigration and power around education and all these other groups, like um, there's stuff locally happening that we've got to be attentive to and discern like, what is God doing and how can we join in with the presence of God at work in our world um, and seeking justice and doing mercy? What's your hope for the book? Um, I mean, I guess it, I'm audacious enough to say that it will radicalize the church in the way of Jesus um, so that we can um, recover a faithful public witness of actually doing justice and participating in God's delivering presence in the world. Um, so I do hope that it awakens us, radicalizes us. I use that in the, I know some people don't like the word radicalize, but, but that's exactly what I, I want us to be radical in the way of Jesus, um, radical in the kind of love that we show and embody and demonstrate in the public square, um, radical in our commitments to those that suffer most, to those that are most vulnerable, to those um, that have been uh, ignored and left in the cracks and margins of our society. I think that um, it's time, you know, we have centuries of failure in the church. The church has, uh, I don't think we, I, I, I recognize because when I teach my courses, um, and some of them will do like some church history stuff and stuff. And students are like baffled, like they just didn't know, right? And they're like, how could I not know these things? I'm like we've, we're, it, we're naive about the degree to which we have vandalized the name and witness of Jesus in the public square as the church. And so we've got some real work to do. Um, so that instead of that, we can actually make visible God's reign on earth. Um, that's actually our actual vocation. Um, and I'm hoping that my book, um, helps to spark some of that and gives us some theological frameworks and commitments to the way of Jesus, as well as strategies to actually get involved at the grassroots level in our own neighborhoods, not just voting every four years because we're worried about getting some fool out of the White House, but, but how do we actually do this work 24-7, um, uh, 365 days out of the year as a faithful witness to who God is in our, in our lives? If you want to stay connected with Drew, visit his website, drewgiheart.com. Of course, follow him on Twitter and go out and purchase Who Will Be a Witness Wherever Books Are Sold. Drew, thank you again for joining the conversation. It's always great to have you on and to be uh, the beneficiaries of, of your wisdom. And, and thank you for calling us to a grassroots revolution of a politics of love. Oh, thank you, Andy. This has been a pleasure. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing I don't think we've mentioned on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in.